Well, amen. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 is where we'll be. His name was Roy Regals, and he played for the University of California, and he was an All-American in the late 1920s, going back about 100 years, and he played both sides of the ball, offensive and defensive lines, and in the 1929 Rose Bowl, the University of California was playing Georgia Tech in a nationally broadcasted game, and it was a great game. Back and forth, back and forth, an incredible Rose Bowl. And during the game, though, there was a fumble. And Roy picked up the ball. And he began running. And he began running. And the crowd at this point is going wild. They're going crazy, and they're just shouting. You can imagine his moment. I mean, he's got this ball. He is running straight towards the end zone. I mean, this is a nationally broadcasted game, the Rose Bowl. This is, this is it. There was a problem, though. Roy was running the wrong way. Thankfully, though, a teammate tackled him at his own one-yard line before he was able to score a touchdown for the opposing team. However, it did lead to a California safety, which is two points, and California would lose the game to Georgia Tech 8-7. to seven. And because of the play, Roy got the famous nickname, Roy Wrongway Regals. The reason I start with that story is because you and I have run the wrong way. All of us. We have sinned. And as a result, we are hopeless, helpless. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Paul makes this clear in the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2, which is what we've looked at over these last few weeks. There... Paul describes a dreadful existence in which you and I once lived. All of us. We were dead. This is who we were. And we were the cause of our own death. We sinned. It was our trespasses and sins that separated us from the Lord. That alienated us from Him. That left us without Him. We had no one to blame but ourselves. We got ourselves into this mess. It's our fault. We ran the wrong Way. Thus, by nature, we deserved wrath. We deserved death and judgment. Because we were, by nature, bound, as we saw last week, by the flesh. That power, as one person said, that holds us in bondage. A power that leads us to sin, to engage in every manner of sin. Compelling us to give in to all those various cravings and desires and passions that come directly from the source known as the flesh. And it's clear from Scripture, especially Jesus, that this flesh is what defiles us. And under the power and dominion of the flesh, you and I, we lived in step with. We followed the Satan, the evil one, the ruler of the air and his worldly system of division, darkness, and destruction. This is what defined us outside of Jesus. It's what controlled us. It's what ruled over us. Therefore, we deserved separation forever and ever and ever. But God. Two words put here by Paul in verse 4. But God. The entire narrative changes. 
As one commentator said, in light of the distressing plight that humanity faces because of the powerful chains of our slavery, the two words, but God, of this next paragraph shines a brilliant ray of hope for humanity. In other words, you and I ran the wrong way, but God, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you who were alienated from him, you who were dead, you have been saved. Verse 6, and he has raised us up with him and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that and we'll look more at this in the coming weeks but so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable the incomparable riches of his grace in kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus verse 8 again for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In 2011, there was a man in Austria who was working in his backyard one afternoon. And he was digging and he was working in the mud and the dirt to try to expand a pond in his yard. And he had worked for hours. He was dirty sweaty, a mess. The yard was a mess, you can imagine. But then, all of a sudden, in the midst of the dirt and the mess, he stumbled upon something. He dug up a treasure that he had no idea was there. True story, it was a treasure of gold and silver, and it came to equal roughly 150,000 U.S. dollars. A new statement on the story came out shortly thereafter about the discovery, and here's one of the lines in that news statement. A private individual has found sensational treasure in dirt. Paul lists three words in these verses, mercy, love, grace. Together they are three qualities of God that compelled him, that moved him. To come after us. To step down into darkness. To get dirty. To step into the dirt. In order to make the dirty clean. To take those who were running in the wrong direction. And put them running in the right direction. To take those who were darkness. And make them light. To take those who were dead. And make them alive. God's mercy, love, and grace. Compelled him to enter the dirty. Because he saw sensational treasure in the dirt. As scripture says, behold, those dwelling in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Behold, unto us sinners is born this day in the city of David, a savior. As Paul told Titus in chapter 2 verse 11 of that letter, grace has appeared. And this grace, this light is made known to us. Not as an object, but as a person. In and through the person of Jesus. 
who is the revelation of God in human form. The light of the world, the living water, the bread from heaven, the word become flesh. The one who is the exact imprint of God's very nature or character, who is the fullness of deity in human form, who is the one in whom God was pleased to have his fullness dwell. He is the only begotten, the way, the truth, the life. He is Jesus, and he came to show us, to reveal to us, these three qualities, characteristics. God's mercy, God's love, and God's grace. He is the one who walked across the chasm to inject himself into the lives of those who had been beaten, broken, robbed, and left for dead on the side of the road. That he might care for them. Those harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That he might save them from their death. The one who came to forgive us a debt that we could never repay. The one who came to extend to us his hand of healing and comfort and compassion and just presence when you and I were untouchable. The one who came to be pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. The one who came to become our sin, even though he knew no sin, to be forsaken by God, a curse on a tree that we might go free. God's mercy, love, and grace compelled him to enter the dirt, for he saw sensational treasure in the dirt. But listen, Scripture is clear. Paul is clear in this context. Humanity, us, we are unworthy. We are unfaithful. You and I are undeserving of salvation. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what denomination we belong to. It doesn't matter what we think we know. We are unworthy and faithful and undeserving. What a wretch I am. But God... For it is now in and through the person of Jesus that God saves us. He saves us from the rule of the enemy, from the rule of the world, from the rule of the flesh. God saves us from death and from his wrath and judgment on sin. See, Paul starts with mercy. His mercy is what compelled him to extend to us compassion and forgiveness instead of wrath and judgment. As one person would argue, mercy is him withholding that which we deserve. And so he withholds his wrath, his judgment, because he so loved us unconditionally. For God so loved the world just as we were. He loved us. That he sent Jesus. That whoever would just believe in him would not die but have eternal life. They would not receive that which they deserve. God would hold back death from them and instead give them eternal life. And this is how we know what love is, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. It was his mercy and his love that moved him, but not just his mercy and love. It was also by grace that we have been saved. He now extends to us, those who once were dead, those who once were failures and rebels. He now extends to us life and forgiveness, hope, joy, light, a new beginning. Another definition of grace, as some would say, is he extends to us that which we don't deserve. So if mercy is him withholding that which we do deserve, grace is him extending to us that which we don't deserve. What Paul is describing here is our salvation in Jesus. 
He says, verse 5, by grace we have been saved. Because of his mercy and his love and his grace, by grace we have been saved. We have been born again. Something has transpired. We have passed from death into life, darkness into light. A transaction has occurred. We've gone from a status of non-child to a status of child. As John would say, those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. By grace, we're now running the right direction. But according to the tense of this verb that Paul uses, it's not just that we have been saved, it's that we are being saved. See, salvation for Paul and really the New Testament is continual. It's a continual status. God continues to uphold you. He continues to keep you safe. As Jesus said, for those now who are belong to him, nothing or no one can snatch them from his hand. As Paul would say, for those in Christ, nothing can now separate us from the love of God. By grace we have been saved, but by grace we also will continue in salvation. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and as we see elsewhere in the New Testament, those in Jesus will be saved at Jesus' appearing. When the final judgment comes. So from scripture's perspective, salvation in Christ is past, present, and future, all because of the grace of God. And for Paul, though, he takes it even a step further and expounds on this and shows us that God's salvation equals participation. Now, this is really difficult for you and I to fully comprehend or understand. It's almost mind-boggling to even think about But for Paul, we, those in Jesus, as we see elsewhere, we were united with him in death. And somehow we have been made alive together with him. We have been raised up together with him. We are seated together with him, he says. We have been delivered from the unholy trinity. We no longer are under the power of the Satan, the world, or the flesh. We are now under the power of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our citizenship has gone from this world to his kingdom. We belong to him now. Thus we are light, we have life, and thus we sit in victory. Because, not of our works, but because our identity is wrapped up in Jesus. This is why John would argue in 1 John, for those who love Jesus, for those who belong to him, they've overcome the world. They've overcome the The enemy, the evil one, they've overcome the spirit of the Antichrist. Even when their own heart condemns them, they've overcome their flesh because of Jesus. You and I now sit, because we are in Christ, we sit in exaltation and victory with him. All because we are in him. One commentator said it this way, By virtue of our union with Christ, believers now share in his power and authority over all the principalities over all the powers, authorities, and indeed any spiritual power that you can think of. You now participate in the benefits of Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. It's not just that you've shared in his resurrection spiritually, but one day physically, but you also are enthroned with Christ, as Paul would say, in the heavenly places. Now think about that, because if you go back to Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, Paul explains that the enthronement or seating of Christ entails his exaltation to a position of supremacy over all powers, even the demonic powers. Thus, you are the city on a hill. You are the salt of the earth. 
Thus, you are the body of Jesus. You are the light in the darkness. You are the bride of the Lamb. You are the redeemed. You are the new creation in Christ, the sons and daughters of God, the new humanity in Christ. You are the church. And that is all because of the mercy, love, and grace of God, not by works of the flesh, for that accomplishes nothing for us as we see elsewhere. It is all of God. This is what Paul is saying. But let me describe it to you like this. A little over a year ago, June 2021, our family went to visit my brother and his family who lived in North Carolina at the time. He's in the Navy, but now he lives in Chicago. If you know the military, you know how that goes. And so me, Noah, and Caroline, we were going to hop in the car and drive 20 hours with my parents, so their grandparents. I'll just leave it at that. We drove 20 hours with Noah, Caroline, myself, and my parents. Somehow we made it. But Stephanie flew with Hannah, who was 10 months at the time, on a plane. She got the lucky end of it, I think. Before the trip, though, we researched what airport they would fly out of, what airport they would fly into, and what airline they would fly with. And one night before the trip, we made our decision, and the ticket was purchased. Now, the purchase of the ticket produced a transaction, and it brought an immediate change in Stephanie's status in the eyes of the airline. She went from non-passenger to passenger, immediately at the moment of purchase. That transfer of status carried with it benefits that could be realized in the present, but also would be realized in the future. In other words, at the moment of purchase, she could then begin to, through things like the airline app on her phone, she could begin to purchase things. She could organize things through her status as passenger, no longer as a non-passenger. Things in which I, a non-passenger, did not have access to. And then in the future, her benefits would include, on the day of her arrival at the airport, she would pass successfully through security. She could wander about the terminals, no questions asked. She would have a right to be in the airport. She also would then have a right to the airplane and to her seat on the airplane. Her status immediately changed, offering benefits at the moment of transaction, but also guaranteeing benefits in the future. And in the meantime, before the trip, that ticket protected her reservation and was a guarantee on the part of the airline that she would inherit those promised benefits, and it was their promise that she would arrive safely in the new world known as North Carolina. So the ticket had three phases, three effects, past, present, and future. But I want you to see this from Hannah's perspective. Again, our 10-month-old daughter at the time, because that is what Paul is getting at. Hannah did not purchase the ticket. It didn't matter Hannah's knowledge as a 10-month-old, her abilities as a 10-month-old. She could never purchase the ticket. It was impossible for her to do such a thing. However, simply because she was Stephanie's daughter, when Stephanie purchased the ticket, Hannah's status changed. Through and because of Stephanie, Hannah went from non-passenger to passenger. And then through and because of Stephanie, Hannah now possessed the same benefits as Stephanie. Hannah now would be greeted at the airport as a passenger. Hannah would be welcomed by the airline as a rightful passenger on their airplane. 
Hannah's seat on the airplane was being kept safe for her now. She now possessed the inheritance that Stephanie owned. She now had a right to the seat and had a right to the promise of arrival in North Carolina, a place she could never even dream of. Because of her status as Stephanie's daughter, because Stephanie purchased a ticket and now held an agreement between her and the airline, through Stephanie, Hannah had a guarantee of acceptance upon her arrival. She'd be treated as a passenger, be given a rightful inheritance. And guess who would be holding her the entire time? Stephanie. The reason Hannah had the promise of these rewards, the assurance of these rewards, had nothing to do with her works. It was all because of her status as Stephanie's child. Your salvation, Paul is arguing, has nothing to do with your works. Nothing you could do could satisfy. Nothing you could do could achieve what you needed to achieve. It has everything to do, Paul is arguing, with God's mercy, with God's love, and God's grace. The fact that you now reside in Christ and no longer in yourself. That's what it comes down to. Your identity is now wrapped up in Jesus. Because of your status now as God's child, you now get the benefits that come through the ticket that Jesus purchased. Because of the agreement, the new covenant between Jesus and the Father, you who were once a slave to your sin, now get to sit on his lap as a son or daughter and enter the new world in him, because of him, through him, and greeted as a rightful heir with him. When you place faith in Jesus, you are given the right to be his son or daughter, and you now come under the purchased ticket of Jesus. Thus is no longer you who lives now, but Christ who lives in you. And it is in his great mercy, he now holds back a wrath that his children once deserved, and in his wonderful, brilliant grace, he now extends to his children something they could never earn and at one point did not deserve. In Jesus, he gives his children love, forgiveness, living hope, living water, light, and a new life. He transfers us from darkness into light, death into life, from non-child status to child status. And we now have a right to the present benefits in the Spirit to an inheritance that we will be accepted by God as rightful children, welcomed into the airport, if you will, having a seat on the plane that we will arrive safely in the new world. But we have exaltation in Christ even now over every authority and power because of him. In other words, our salvation equals participation. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. Overall, think of it like this. There was a man and a woman hiking one day in a mountainous region, and there were many cliffs like this that you can see on the screen. And this is a true story. The man stopped the woman and proceeded to get down on one knee. This is not the couple, but this is what he did. And there was an emotion and excitement at this moment, because this is the universal sign that something is about to be asked. A life is about to be changed here. So there was excitement and emotion, and she says, yes, after he asks her, will you marry me? And she goes to hug him, to jump up, to do whatever it is she was going to do to show her excitement and joy. But when she did so, she slipped. And she was standing a little too close to the edge, and she proceeded to fall. 
And she proceeded to fall 650 feet, over 200 yards. Think of two football fields. Paul makes it clear here, you and I, in a way, were that woman. We slipped, we rebelled, we were in a free fall. Our destiny was doomed and sealed. We were dead in our trespasses and sins unless something or someone intervened and saved us. Well, the woman fell and she fell. Her destiny was sealed. I mean, this is it. And I can only imagine the guy's horror. But then something saved her. She stopped falling when she was caught by a bed of white pure snow. No joke. She lived. She survived. She was saved. You and I were falling. Our destiny was sealed, but God, rich in mercy because of his love for us, and because of his grace, he saved us. And we were brought near by the pure blood of Jesus. As Julia Johnston once wrote, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Or as John Newton would say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. But salvation comes down to faith. We're saved by grace through faith, Paul says, not by works but by and through faith. As we're told in Hebrews 11.6, it is impossible to please God without faith. While it is all of God by grace, this grace comes to those by faith. Faith is not the gift. Salvation by grace is the gift. The question remains, though, is do you believe? As Paul would argue in Romans 3 and Romans 10, We are to believe in the one in whom God sent for our salvation. The question is, have we believed? Do we have faith in Jesus? For those of us who have faith in Jesus, we must be reminded today that it is solely because of his mercy, love, and grace that we are saved. So humble yourself. Come to the foot of the cross and give thanks. And for those of us who are not in Christ, it is crucial that we understand that if we are found outside of Christ at his appearing, Just like in the days of Noah, those outside of Christ will be swept away. So don't disbelieve, but believe. 
And in doing so, he will give you the right to become his children. And he will save you by his grace. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, what I want us to do right now is get our hearts and minds ready to partake of the Lord's Supper together. Lisa's going to come down. They're going to sing or just play some instruments for us. And I'm going to invite the deacons to come down here in the front pew just to get their hearts and minds ready. But Paul talks about not partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. For some of us, we need to repent of some sins. John said, listen, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So we need to confess those sins. For others of us, we just need to get a disposition of thanks. Giving thanks to God for Jesus. His body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. That we who were dead could now be alive in him. To give thanks that because and by the blood of Jesus, we are brought near to him. So whatever you need to do in this time, just get your heart to mind ready for the partaking of the Lord's Supper.